0: Now, I don't know if um, you're very familiar with court cases. What's the biggest court case, do you think, that the world has ever seen? Maybe, I don't know, O.J. Simpson, that was pretty big. Hillsborough, that was a massive one in this country recently. Um, I don't know what, what you think it is. They, they often kind of get into the news, don't they, big, big court cases. They can be very dramatic, and they can be very gripping. They're, they're often the subject of TV programmes... Uh, or of films um, and uh, children if you aren't sure what a court case is, uh, it's worth me explaining, a court case is, is where something's happened, normally something bad And um, say something's been stolen and, um, and someone's been accused of doing the stealing, someone's been accused of being the thief so they're, they're taken to court and, and there are some lawyers who, who um, get the evidence and tell everyone what the evidence is uh, they talk to, to witnesses, people who saw what had happened, uh, or, or, or um, other bits and pieces of, of evidence. And then there's a jury, which is uh, 12 people uh, in this country, um, or just any sorts of people, uh, could be from anywhere, uh, who then have to decide whether they think this person did it or didn't, if they're guilty or innocent. That's what a, a court case is. Uh, but believe it or not... Jesus says, here in John chapter 5, that he is in a court case, and if so, this is the biggest court case that the world has ever seen, without question. This is the most important one, uh, the biggest one, the one that we should have most interest in. Because, you see, Jesus has been claiming to be God in the flesh. Uh, The one who... Uh, can can sort our lives out, uh, not in a superficial way, by giving us some rules to follow. No, that's not why Jesus came. But but in a deep way, transforming our lives powerfully, uh, giving us a, a, a total, perfect, everlasting new life. And the reason that we can trust him to do that is because, he says, he is the source of life. He is God himself. And of course, when he said that, uh, people got really, really angry. Uh, You can understand that, can't you? People got really angry with him. They wanted to kill him, in fact. And Jesus' response was to calmly lay out exactly what it was he's claiming. Yes, in fact, he is from the Father. He is God with the Father. Uh, and we're told in, um, uh, in last week's passage that we were looking at, John uh, 5 verse 17, so um, please do keep uh, pages 1068, 69 of, of the Red Bibles open, uh, or whatever it is, 1858 maybe of the large print Bibles, um, uh, because we're going to be going through the verses that um, Lizzie read to us a moment ago, but back in last week's passage, verse 17, it describes what Jesus was saying to these Jewish leaders as his defence. Like in a court case where you have a, a, a defense laid out for you, uh, and in his defense, he started by saying, Yes, I am God, in fact. Um, but this week, he gives us the evidence and he urges us and everyone listening to consider the evidence and to consider, particularly, our reaction to the evidence. And children, listen up as we go through what the evidence is, because um, on the next page of, of your booklet, I think there are um, some things to, to fill in about this uh, evidence. Um, but this isn't just for children. Uh, perhaps children haven't heard this stuff. But actually, it's grown-ups, I wonder if we, perhaps, haven't spent time seriously thinking through the evidence for ourselves as grown-ups. This is the most uh, fundamental decision, uh, the, the, the biggest verdict that ever we can come to. And perhaps uh, we, we think we don't, we don't need to look at evidence because uh, faith, surely, is about believing without any evidence. But, but that's not the way the Bible talks about faith at all. And Jesus doesn't want us to believe without evidence. He wants us to believe the evidence. He wants us to understand what his claims are. And show that he has proven himself in every possible way. In fact, Jesus says, the evidence is undeniable. That's what he's talking about verses 31 uh, to 39. He's not just saying, uh, take my word for it. If I testify about myself, my testimony isn't true. Instead, he gives four witnesses. He calls four witnesses um, to stand up for him. Uh, And so um, let's briefly just go through them. Verse 32, God himself. It's Jesus' first witness. That's a pretty good witness to be able to call on, isn't it? Um, verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Uh, verse 37 says again, and the Father certainly has himself testified concerning me. Uh, and and we, we know that already. If are going through John's gospel, if you've been here in previous weeks, back in John, in, um, John chapter 1, um, John the Baptist tells us and uh, that he heard God's voice about Jesus speaking. And actually the other Gospels say the same. Uh, his baptism and then his transfiguration. Uh, God himself, a voice from heaven, came to testify about his son. That's a pretty extraordinary piece of evidence to be able to draw on. Second piece of evidence uh, is John the Baptist uh, so not only does John the Baptist pass on this voice from God, he also explains he is not, he himself, John the Baptist, is not the Messiah, God's chosen one, uh, who's going to rescue people. Instead, he points forward to Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, that's what John, um, Jesus appeals to. Verse 33, you've sent to John, he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, Jesus didn't mean to know that, but I mention it. That you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and and then slightly ominously he adds, and you chose for a time to enjoy that light. So um, John the Baptist testifies on Jesus' behalf, which is helpful for for us and for others. He he, 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 uh, drew massive crowds and he pointed them all to Jesus uh, away from himself. To Jesus. Third third uh, evident, third piece of evidence. Third witness actually. Slightly strange witness. Verse 36. I have testimony way easier than that of John. This great last prophet of the Bible. For the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing. Testify that the Father has sent me. Uh, so what Jesus is saying. Look. The things that I'm doing speak volumes about me. He says, uh, what I've been doing is inexplicable in human terms. Not only the, the power that he showed himself to have, and he did show himself to have awesome power, majestic power, he could transform uh, the chemical composition of the world around him. as He changed water into wine. He could make sick people well and lots more. But but it's not just the power that Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, the, the, the works that I'm doing, what I am doing with myself, shows who I am. Yes, powerful, but also, the decisions that he's made, the life that he leads, doesn't make sense if it's just another man. I mean, think about it for a moment. Here's a man with, with immense power. Power that, that the world hasn't seen since the creation. Uh, this guy with immense power is homeless. He spends uh, his entire adult life in the community, uh, basically on a journey with a, with a few followers, who aren't by themselves in any way impressive, fishing uh, all sorts of um, uh, immoral people who are looked down in society. Uh, and not that many of them, to be honest. But it's not very long. Because his journey takes him to Jerusalem and the cross, where he's killed. Now why would Jesus do that if he were just another guy looking out for himself. His works testify that the Father sent him, that he's on a mission from God. It's inexplicable otherwise. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, so, God himself, John the Baptist, Jesus' works, and then finally, the Old Testament scriptures testify that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 39, halfway through. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Uh, here is a, a written record of who Jesus is. Now the really interesting thing about this written record, it's not like other written records that, that are appealed to in courtrooms, uh, in trials, all across the country every day, because this written record was written hundreds of years in advance of Jesus, over which any human being couldn't possibly have had control hundreds of years before they born saying where he's going to be born, how he's going to be born, to whom he's going to be born, what he's going to do, uh, what is going to be done to him. All of those things. Nobody could fabricate that. So Jesus calls on these four witnesses, God, John the Baptist, the works he's doing, Old Testament scriptures. The evidence he's saying is undeniable. And please do ask any questions about that later. We've got a question time, as Rachel said. Uh, later on this morning. Um, so uh, if you've got questions about the evidence, please do jot them down uh, and then um, hand them to Rachel later and, and I'll give you a bit more detail if you like. Uh, but, but actually in a trial, the evidence isn't everything that counts. At least not trials uh, that, that uh, we do. Because actually, what's going on in the jury, in a sense, is what matters, isn't it? What their, what their reaction is uh, to the evidence, to the defendant, uh, to, the, to the lawyers. And sadly, the, even if the evidence is overwhelming, that may not be enough. That's been the case, has it, all through history. Racism, prejudice, elitism. They've often produced miscarriages of justice. And it's tragic. But here... In verses 37 to 44, we get a a sneak peek into what's going on with this particular jury in front of Jesus as he gives his defense. Verse 37, have a look down at the first thing Jesus says about them. The Father who sent me is himself, testify concerning me. You, you who are listening to this evidence, have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. This is pretty strong stuff from Jesus. Isn't it? You can hardly really imagine that in a court case, the defendant um, or the, the, the lawyer for the defence turning to the jury and saying this kind of thing uh, to them. Um, but but, but he's saying, look, you're, you're rejecting the witness evidence out of hand because you don't listen to God and he's the key witness. You don't know God. These, these oh-so-religious people These people who claim to have the closest relationship with God, and Jesus says all their religious experience is false. It's fake. It's nothing. Because they don't believe in the one sent from God, which proves that their religious experience is nothing. They were already rejecting the evidence in front of them before Jesus opened his mouth. They closed their minds to the possibility that Jesus is God's son. And it's a warning, I think, for us, isn't it? Uh, firstly, it's, it's um, a warning that Jesus makes because of their blind um, bias. But these guys were the best Bible students of their day. Did you notice that? You diligently study the Scriptures, Jesus says. You study the Scriptures diligently. You well, work really hard at knowing the Bible. That sounds like a glowing commentation, if it wasn't for the context. You, just, you study the Scriptures diligently because... You think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. You refuse to come to me to have life. What about us? What about us? We're a church that that endeavours to take the Bible really seriously. But every time we come to God's word and do not come face to face with Jesus, We're in real trouble. If I'm not prepared to be humbled by him and to have my views changed, to have my life changed, I need to beware because I'm stepping into the same boat as these Jewish leaders. You diligently study the scriptures. That can be said of many of us, if we're honest. You diligently study the scriptures. Uh, We often do it in a casual way you diligently study the scriptures, because you think that by them you have eternal life. We've got it all right, except the the Bible and, and reading the Bible doesn't automatically or magically give life. There are profoundly intelligent Bible scholars all over the world who don't know Jesus, who've never understood what the Bible really says. Because the Bible has been given to us to reveal Jesus to us. That's why God's given it to us. And it's by engaging with him that the words of the scriptures can transform our lives. Now, if you're not following Jesus yet, then please think very carefully before writing him off. If this is true, it's really important now, we live in a culture that makes a great fuss about free choice, don't um, it, we? It's kind of at the core of who we are. But we'd better be careful how we exercise our free choice. If our greatest desire is to be free of the control of another, then, when we read the Bible, we better forget about understanding. we better forget about a personal relationship with the living God, because we can't come to a relationship with God on, on our terms, free from the control of another. <clears throat> you see, when and um, these men were in control of their Bible study, they loved it. But when it came to letting them introduce them to the one who would control their lives, they weren't having any of it. They were blindly biased to what the Bible was saying. And that was because, uh, verses 41 onwards, they had misdirected motives. So that's a sort of a mouthful, isn't it? Misdirected motives. Verse uh, 41 to 44, let me reread that for us. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you accept him. How can you believe? Since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Now, we all want glory. We all want praise uh, from around us, don't we? We all want... Uh, approval and affirmation and so on. That's not a design flaw. That's a good thing, to want affirmation and praise and approval and so on. Jesus isn't actually saying that's wrong here. It's a bit like worry. Jesus doesn't um, tell us not to worry. Uh, Many people think that's what Matthew chapter 6 says, you know, don't Don't worry you know, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and so on, he doesn't say don't worry. He says worry about what's actually important. Stop worrying about those things which don't matter. And here, he isn't saying don't seek praise. He's not saying you shouldn't be uh, seeking approval and affirmation all the time. The instinct that you and I have for affirmation and approval is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We're meant to. We're not meant to be an island. None of us does well in life without affirmation and and approval and respect and and so on. It's a natural and right human need. And and children, don't you love it? When your parents uh, look at you and and say, 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 I'm so proud of you. You did so well. And not just children. It's all of us, isn't it? Uh, We love it being noticed and being praised it's normal to want praise the question is whose praise do we want whose praise do we see there was once a, a concert pianist a young a young concert pianist who um, got a, a, a standing ovation at the end of his concert uh, but he wouldn't come out of the wings to to uh, take a bow and do an encore And the the, the theatre manager went out and said, you've got to go out. Everyone is is still clapping. They they need you to to come back out. Everyone's on their feet. Not everyone, the concert pianist said. And the manager went back out, had a look. And he came back and said, "The, the, the whole place is standing. All except one guy. Everyone's standing up. The pianist said, that man's my teacher. And he wouldn't come out. He was the only one that mattered to him really, in that big room. And sometimes it's only one person that matters. You might know that in different contexts. But in this life, in the last resort, it's only God who matters. It's only his praise that counts. If it's a choice between the praise of the the population of the whole world, everyone thinking you're great, having millions of followers on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is. If it's a choice between that or the praise of God, I wonder which one you choose. Jesus says, the reason that you Jewish leaders don't believe me is because you're looking for praise from the wrong place. They wanted things on human terms. Verse uh, 43. Uh, if, um, if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. People uh, who come in their own name are also seeking praise from human beings. That they could understand. They could flatter and uh, manipulate and uh, relate to them on a human level. But they couldn't relate to Jesus in that way. Jesus said, verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings. Jesus was no mere human. And they wanted no relationship with God. Verse 42. Uh, I, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And you see that, that, that love of affection and, and affirmation and approval and all those things. Right? That, good, that good desire can become a deadly thing for us. When we try and satisfy it merely with human praise instead of the God sized praise that's available to human beings. Verse 44 How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? But do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. A bit like alcoholism. A healthy thirst for approval can become a self destructive uh, obsession. Some people will do almost anything to be popular, to get those likes, whatever it is, to be the center of attention. That's why um, these companies, the social media companies, are some of the biggest companies in our world today, why they make so much money, because they play on a, a very deep desire in us, a very addictive thing, the glory of human beings. There's only one person's praise that you and I ultimately need. (coughs) So, uh, that's what's going on in the jury. Uh, And and, and Jesus has put the spotlight on them uh, in this uh, defence that he he has been making. But we get to um, an unexpected twist at the end of the passage, don't we? Verses 45 to 47. I don't know if you noticed as Lizzie read it to us earlier on. Uh, it It is a twist in this courtroom drama and because the whole courtroom scene is turned on its head, isn't it? Verse 45, have a look back down. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. There's, there's a role reversal, isn't there? And these people who've been accusing Jesus, and he was uh, making his defence, and here are these people sitting in judgment on him, and now, he says, these people are being accused. He says it's, it's not, not him that's accusing. Instead, it, it, it's Moses. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. So Moses is, is their accuser. Now Moses, I don't know if you know much about Moses. Moses is the representative lawgiver. He was the one uh, tasked by God with giving the people the Ten Commandments uh, and, um, and the law. And Jesus makes it clear when he um, uh, describes the the Old Testament and the law that uh, the Old Testament law is to reveal, is there, to reveal to us the moral character of God. That's its purpose, to show us what God is like. It's more about him than it is about us. It's important we understand that. This is what God is like and therefore it's how you and I ought to behave. But the commandments weren't meant to be an exam paper of human behaviour, you know, you know, complete any four out of ten. And that's not the way it works. They show us God's holiness, and therefore they show us our sin, the ways in which we fall short of what God is like, and therefore what we're meant to be like. And so inevitably, the, the law, these rules, drive us to Jesus. Because as we read them, we're condemned. Oh God, I'm so far short of what I ought to be. And so I'm forced to cry out for God's mercy. And to seek the forgiveness that that I'm only offered in the death of Jesus Christ. You realise that's what Christianity is really all about. And you realise that's what the Old Testament and the law is really all about. Sorry if we haven't given you the right impression about that, as a church or as Christians. Look again at those verses um, which um, uh, describe Jesus' um, verdict on these uh, Jewish leaders. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Only the death of Jesus can can meet my need because of how far I've fallen short of what the law of God requires, of what God is like. Churches um, aren't, therefore, like museums, I've said this before, Uh, full of um, unattainable perfection to look at as you gaze upon the splendour of Christian lives. I I don't think you could uh, really get to know many of us here and come away with that. Wrong impression, But that's not what churches are meant to be. Churches aren't meant to be museums where you, you, you look at um, beautiful things. Churches are hospitals for sinners who need help. And all of us are sinners. And the doctor is Jesus. So if life is broken for you, then welcome to the club. Our children, grown-ups, Rich, poor, uh, regulars, first-timers, religious, irreligious. We've broken uh, our lives and we've broken God's law. Verse 47, since you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? It would be a dramatic uh, further twist, wouldn't, wouldn't it, um, in, a, in a court case, if, then, if, 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 the, if the jury... Um, see that the person being accused is so perfectly innocent and so wonderfully good that they throw themselves on his mercy and say, Who am I to judge you? But that's kind of what's going on in this court case. We start by examining Jesus, putting ourselves in judgment over him, and we end by being in the dock ourselves crying out for his mercy. So I think the right way to end um, uh, our time thinking about this passage uh, and the sermon is just to remind ourselves of what Moses said uh, and then to respond to it um, with uh, some words to say altogether, uh, which are in your word sheets. I'm going to read you a summary of the the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, And as I read... um, As I read out these commands, please don't be thinking to yourself, oh, I've not broken that one, but be thinking, yes, I have. I'm guilty, because there is mercy available. So let me uh, read them out, and then um, join together in the words uh, on, um, on the word sheet. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not dishonor the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not commit a a murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be a false witness. You shall not covet anything which belongs to your neighbor. So we say together, Lord, have mercy on us and write all these your laws on our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.